Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gehon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is God's word. All right. You may be seated, and uh, this is the moment where if you've got kids you want to take back to one of the kids' rooms, you can head back that way. We've got um, zero to three-year-olds back through the right-hand door, and then up to seven-year-olds uh, to the door back by the entryway. So we are in, uh, we're in a series right now up until kind of uh, we consider summer to start, which is very soon, and even though it feels like it already began, doesn't it? And this, this series is looking at the foundations of the Christian faith, and what we have just read here today is where the doctrine of going to church comes from. Surprised? Can't wait to tell you about it. So, kids are delivered, and I'm going to lead us now in a prayer uh, shaped around the Lord's Prayer to uh, enter us into this time. So, let's pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You deserve our love and attention. You're more valuable than anything else that we experience, and you are good and deserve to be seen, recognized, and remembered. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven, for when it does, things will be oriented right. The earth will break forth in song, the trees of the field, the birds of the air, and the peoples will sing for joy in your presence. Give us this day our daily bread, for in our time of waiting for your kingdom, even now, you are all that we need. And every good and perfect gift comes from you. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors, because we don't worship you as we should. We worship idols. We take good things you've made and treat them as if they are our gods. Forgive us 
And in your mercy, teach us to forgive those who undervalue and mistreat us as we mistreat you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for our worship is always being misdirected. We're tempted to bow down to things that disintegrate and dehumanize us. Help us and redirect our gaze to you alone, for to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So yeah, so today, the foundational belief of the church and gathering together in the church. Uh, we have a vision here at Mission, um, and that is the, this idea that we want to be an outpost of the church. And so to be an outpost of the church, we need to understand what the church is, why we would value it, and what it means to be a part of it. So it's, it's important to understand the idea of the church. In our outpost model of the church, we say that we're very committed to the entire church of Jesus Christ, of all times and all places, um, but we're also extremely committed to those who are outside of the church, and we intentionally want to put ourselves in the lives of people that, that aren't in the church, or who would say maybe they only uh, touch base with the church from time to time, or just kind of dipping their toes in with faith. We want to be very committed to, to being in relationship with those folks and understanding where, where they're coming from, while still being solidly centered in the timeless truths of Christianity. So, it's important for us to understand what the church is. The church, by definition, is God's people of all times and places. That's probably the simplest way of saying what the word that we translate church means. It would be the gathering, the gathering of, of God's people from all time and all places by God. Uh, the word can refer to the whole group of those people of all times or to a group like a local assembly of people like, like us right now. Um, we become used to thinking of the word church as referring to a building or an institution, but at its most basic form, it's just people. But then again, people tend to gather, especially in Arizona, inside of places with roofs, you know, to keep the sun off. And people are supposed to organize themselves. The church is supposed to be organized and, and have order and follow principles that are wise. And whenever you do that, you become an institution. So the church can never really be divorced from the idea of buildings and institutions as much as we might try. Now, we'll be looking at the church a lot more over the summer. We're actually going to walk through the book of 1 Peter, which kind of gives this compelling vision of what the church should be. But for today, we're looking at where it, the idea begins and where we really get the foundations for it. And as I said, Genesis 1 and 2 is where that comes to us in the Bible. So we're going to look at four things that come out of Genesis 1 and 2. First is the principle of Sabbath, um, and that is the idea that we would worship um, a God who is the giver of all good things. The second we'll look at is the gathering. Um, the third we're going to look at is the liturgy. And the fourth we're going to look at is the mission, what we're supposed to do. So I hope that today you see church as a weekly return to experience what we were created for and to gaze upon our redemption my hope is that this would be helpful in you developing a desire to want to be in God's church. Um, in no way do I want you to feel bad or like you have to go. That's not the aim of Genesis 1 and 2 or of myself. I want you to want to, and that's kind of what this is about. So I have an illustration from my trip last week. Uh, last week I was in Houston, Texas, 
And I was there doing some planning with other church leaders from the Western United States, and a friend of mine, Johnny Gege, is his name, and he works in the third ward of, of Houston, Texas. And so some of you uh, may be familiar with the, with the third ward because that's where, um, this is where George Floyd is from. And so the third ward got a lot of, a lot of news and press um, during that time that it hadn't had for a while. But the third ward's a, a really interesting place, um, and John when we were there, wanted us to see a couple of things. Some of the historic churches that had been there that had been churches full of slaves, and then they were freed and became kind of anchor churches in the Third Ward. And he wanted us to see a park called Emancipation Park that to him and to that community is very special. So when slaves were freed in the South, um, 1863, the slaves of South or of Texas in general um, found out about two years later about their freedom. And many of you have heard of this, and there's a celebration for this, Juneteenth. Um, but they, they didn't know. They didn't, weren't aware of the freedom that had been given to them uh, by the government, and they most definitely didn't experience it. So in Houston's Third Ward, there was a large community of, of slaves and former slaves. And then there was also a large uh, wealthy Jewish community. Uh, those folks, as the African community built, as happened in many large cities, uh, moved away as the African-American community began to grow. They call it white flight. Uh, this tends to happen in large, or happened in many of the larger cities. And um, as they did that, they left behind their mansions and wealthy African-Americans came in and bought them. And it's become one of the most prosperous um, African-American communities in the nation. But at the time they were trying to celebrate and they wanted a public space to celebrate their freedom and they couldn't find anywhere in the city of Houston that would allow them to throw the party. Uh, people would say, ah, it's busy, it's booked, you know, it's too expensive, whatever. Nobody would let them throw the party. So some leaders uh, in the third ward put together uh, a sum of money that at the time was hard to come up with, $800, and they bought 10 acres of land in the third ward, and they said, if nobody's gonna let us throw a party, we're gonna make a party spot ourselves. And they called it Emancipation Park, and Juneteenth has been celebrated there ever since. They created a place, a beautiful place, um, full, of, full of flowers and grass and fields and places for children to run and play that could be used all year long. And then it was big enough to gather the entire community together to celebrate their freedom. And years later, as, as tends to be the case, we look back on history and say, you know what? That was a good thing that happened. And the city of Houston declared it a, a historic landmark and recently invested $34 million into the park to make it one of the most, one of the most beautiful parks in Houston. It's got a, a recreation center that was you know, designed by a renowned architect, indoor basketball courts, a ballpark for kids that made me wish I had the chance to get out there and swing a bat. It was just flowers, walking paths. It was absolutely gorgeous. And at the corners of the park were pillars of, guess who, pastors of churches that brought this park to be, right? Of people of faith, of the church that rallied to bring this park. And, and the whole city came back around and said, that thing you did, even back when people didn't like it, that was a good thing that you did when you made this park. It was a beautiful place. And John, my friend there, was, he was just so excited for us to see it and to see that this was the work of the church. And then we went down to these churches, all founded by former slaves that had put in the work to build this community. 
Now, I want to show you how the work of the church today is similar and how we can learn from that and how I think actually Genesis 1 and 2, especially chapter 2, can give us the motivation to do stuff like that in our day. So the first principle I want to teach you about here is Sabbath, and that's the idea that we were made to worship and rest in the work that God has done, and in fact, we need to do it every week. Here's what, here's what Genesis tells us. Thus, the heavens and earth were finished, and the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work he'd done in creation. There's a few things, very foundational things, that show up in the book of Genesis, and the way that the scriptures are organized, and you see it work out over the the rest of the scope of scripture, is that these foundational things grow and build into more complex things that still exist to this day. One of those is marriage. It's there in the early, early portions of scripture, and from marriage, what grows? We did, you know, a, a year and a half, two years ago, we, we learned, we spent a whole, whole section on the state and politics. And what grows out of marriage is every other human institution. That's the, that's the first one that God makes, and the others are patterned after it, and they grow up and out of it. The next thing that is declared, and, and this one might be hard for us because we're all trying to get out of it, but is the idea of work. This is a foundational principle of Scripture. A, God has just created. He has been working. He has done beautiful, amazing things. And then he sends his people out into the world to work. It's one of the foundational reasons that we were created. And there's a reason that even though it's exhausting to us, um, there's something incredible about doing good work and being able to look back at it and see that the work that you have done. And the third is the idea of Sabbath, of rest. It's one of the building blocks of humanity that God put in our lives at the very beginning, and you'll see it never goes away. We come to the Ten Commandments later in Exodus, and there it is again. And there has never been any era of the people of God ever, ever, ever in which gathering once a week has not been something that has been understood to be critical to being God's people. It's a a weekly day, that God has set aside for rest and worship. So to rest in the good work that you have done and that God has done, and then to look at it and to set your eyes up to God, who is the giver of all good things. I read something that convicted me this, la- this past week that said this means that the fact that it is about worship, it is not about self-care or vacation. Those are different. It is not just to say, I'm going to play in a way that is, is, you know, something that I might just want to do for me, it would be about looking at who God is. Now, I don't know exactly what activities you, sh- you can and cannot do, but it's about looking at the goodness of God and who he is. The Sabbath is blessed by God in the scripture, which means that he embedded in it benefits that will pass on to you when you partake in it. The Sabbath is made holy by God, which means he set it aside for a specific enriching purpose that conforms to his will. Holiness is when something is set aside and made unique and special. And his purpose is that we should rest from our creative activity 
to look again at who he is and what he has done, because in doing it, we are reoriented to our purpose in this life. We're reoriented to the source of our personhood. We will understand who we are when we lay down our creative work and look at the work that God has done on our behalf. And for Christians, we don't just look out at the creation, we look at redemption in Jesus Christ, the work he has done to save us. As people who can be over or underconfident in our work, we need the Sabbath to remind us that we are not all there ultimately is. If we are, if we are overconfident, puffed up in ourselves, we need to look at the one who made everything possible. I have two arms that work. I did not create them myself, right? I was given these. I was given every single thing, every opportunity, the family I was born into. Everything I have, I, I had nothing to do with. I could have been born on a tribe and a deserted island. I didn't pick anything. And the Sabbath makes me look at the one who picked where I would live, pick who I am, picked the gifts that he would give to me, and, that, and shows me I have very little to do with it. For those of us who are underconfident, who look at everything we, we do and we go, oh, I, I'm never good enough and, and, and I, I fail at everything, we look up at the one who says, no, I am in perfect control and everything that you've been given, even your weaknesses, are because I have stewarded, stewarded them to you to teach you to look to me and not only to yourself. And we can be refreshed in that the world doesn't rest on our shoulders and it's not all up to us. That is what the Sabbath is for. It's pointing us to a deep freedom that can be found when we worship something outside of ourselves. And another way of saying it, when we worship the God who is outside of us, we can recognize the beauty of being utterly dependent and not self-sufficient. A key element to being one of God's people is this becomes a ritual, this gazing, this looking. In a sense, it's something we would do every day. But as a community of God's people, God has called us to do it weekly. And you know what I've found? About every week when I come back here and when I come back to this table, I realize that I have deeply forgotten what God has done for me. Seven days is a stretch for me to remember who God is and what he has done. So the principle of Sabbath is right here at the very beginning that we would rest in who God is and look to him because he is the giver of all things. Now, gathering together. So, you know, why not lay on the couch, right? And think about the good things that God has done and not have to deal with all these people, right? That's difficult to do. We're together in God's presence and receive his provision and calling and wisdom for this life. And to do it, we're supposed to be together. In Genesis, it says, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he'd formed. And out of the ground, the Lord made to spring up every tree that's pleasant in the sight for good food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, as was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you know that in almost, it, when you dig into Christian theology, this is where the seed doctrine of church and temple begins right here. It's in the Garden of Eden. Because the garden in the Bible is the first gathering place for worship. 
Now, it's, it's very easy sometimes, I think a misconception that I've had and others have had is like that the creation was the Garden of Eden. It wasn't. The scripture says it was in a very specific location. It was in the east. It was very near the, the certain uh, point where these rivers began. And in, in a sense, all subsequent gathering places have been patterned after it. The, the temple uh, contains artistic renderings of things from Eden. The ancient Jews even believed that their temple was on the location of Eden because of how much they believed in this. The, the you know, geography doesn't really bear that out, but they saw that connection so tightly that they came to believe that their temple was actually where Eden was. But something that's easy to miss here is that Eden, these are like two alternate, you know, possible locations that people, you know, going off of maps and where these rivers were. But when you think about the scope of the world, this is a very small place, right? It's not huge. I mean, we're talking about a, a, a tiny corner of Iraq at the moment, right? And it was, it was a spot. It was a place. It was a gathering place. It wasn't the whole of creation. And you see in here that the, the trees are planted, you know, and then it mentions that some were in the midst of the garden, which what does that mean? It means that God had created all of these trees for fruit and everything all over the world, and then he put some in the garden. And so this Eden, this place, is, a, is not the whole of creation. The whole of creation was not this perfect Edenic garden. There was the world and creation, then Eden was there in it. And Eden had some very special things. It had the tree of life, where the people would come, and, and somehow God stewarded eternal life to them through this tree, right? And then it has something that's untouchable, something that only God, can, it's too holy, it's too pure. It's something that they have to stand in awe of. You know, knowledge of good and evil isn't, it's not wrong, is it? It's just something they were supposed to stand in awe of. They were supposed to look at the God who had the knowledge of good and evil and not try to touch it themselves. What, that's spiritual discipline. Like they're in this garden, they're feeding on God's eternal life, God is present with them in the garden. We read elsewhere that he walks with them there. That's where he communes with them. That's where they receive his word, his commandments. And then they stand in awe of who he is and they're sent out into the world. That's what the Garden of Eden was. So you have to imagine this. Adam and Eve, you know, are our, our first people who are placed in this garden would would be sent out of the garden. And what would they be doing? They would be inviting people. They would be witnessing to the God who they saw in the garden. They would be telling people of what they had heard from God who they walked with. And they would be bringing people to the garden to eat of the tree of life. They would say, this is where eternal life is. This is where you get the sustenance that you need. This is where you get to meet God so that you can go out into the world and do meaningful, creative work, which is what everybody wants to do, which is why something like the Tower of Babel is so tragic because they're doing work that, that is not centered on who God is. If they had been meeting with God in the garden, they would have built something very different. So the garden is the gathering place of God's people. It's the early church. It's where good doctrine and beliefs came from and then spread out into the world. But you'll notice later in the scripture, I know we didn't read it, read it much here, where does the destructive, the first false teaching happen, right? In the garden. Where does 
false religion, religion of, of self-reliance, where you say, I will take the knowledge that God has. I, I can do better with it myself. It happens in the garden. Where does justification by works, which is where you cover over your own shame and you say, I can handle my issues myself, it begins in the garden. How similar is that to the church today as we know it? It's where you could hear the words of God spoken, but it's also where some of the, some of the darkest heresies come from. It's where so many like religions of the self are born and then spread out into the world to the damage of the world. They often begin right here. Why? Because of how important it is. If you, if you are, you know, the, the Lord of spiritual darkness in this early Genesis narrative, what, what do you want to hurt and harm? You want to hurt and harm the relationship in the garden, right? And if you're doing that today, you want to go for the church. Really quick, if you, um, we know a lot of people, and some of you here are in the same boat, you say, the church has hurt me. Um, or you have friends that say, the church has hurt me. Uh, maybe, maybe this whole Christianity thing is garbage. Well, I, I feel like it needs to be said, and so often we don't say this, I expect some of the hardest stuff to happen in the church. You should expect it. But, but why is that? Is it because the church is just a joke? Maybe it's because the church matters a lot spiritually. Like if it matters a lot spiritually, then you would expect here to be one of the hardest places to be, but also one of the most worthwhile places to be. Think about this for, as a parallel for a second. Say you are extremely patriotic and, and you love the United States and you decide, I'm going to go get involved. I'm going to move to Washington, D.C., and I'm going to get involved I'm gonna, because I, I believe in these principles. I believe in this stuff. And you get in there and you realize some of the people in there, they don't really love their country in there. Some of the people in those institutions are just there for the paycheck. They're just there for their own selfish, stinking reasons, right? And then there's a bomb threat in the Capitol. And you're like, why, are the, why is somebody attacking this? Now imagine if you, if you saw those things and went, America isn't real. This doesn't even exist. This is all a joke. I mean, you could conclude that. But maybe you would be justifiably frustrated that people didn't care because it is real. And when you don't care about something that is real and you act like it, that's hypocrisy and it's frustrating and it undermines things and you should try to do something about it, right? And then why would somebody attack a capital? Well, because that capital symbolizes something and, and something's happening there that matters. That's why they attack the capital and not remote villages in Antarctica, right? Like how many, uh, you know, how often is Russia going, you know what, let's get the Antarcticans. They don't because they're not doing anything, right? I mean, my, sorry, Antarcticans listening, you, I'm sure you're doing really good things. I just don't know about them. Uh, it's my ignorance, not yours. But, but that you come after something that's a threat to you. You come after something that's great, Right? This is also true and, and far more true of the church. So I don't know, maybe we need to tell people, hey, come to my church, come to my community. 
Um, not because it's going to be the greatest place of all time. I mean, you're actually, what you're going to do is you're going to get together with people that God's at work in. Um, they have a lot of issues. And in church, we're actually going to be talking about those. It's probably going to like bubble up to the surface and we're going to have to deal with conflict more than other places where you don't do that. But it's where God is at work. Don't expect it to be smooth, but expect God to be at work. Okay, so the Sabbath and the gathering. Eden was the original gathering place. The point of it was to bring people in so that they would hear God and you would be sent out into the world. This is where we get this teaching for the first time, and we've been living it out ever since. Next, liturgy, which simply means the work of God's people. That's what liturgy is, okay? The work of God's people. Genesis tells us a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and it divided and became four rivers. Uh, the first is the Pishon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and, and there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We learn all that. And then it says, God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep the garden. Okay. Now, it's interesting that these rivers are listed with all their, their precious, precious minerals. And there is something, um, there is something really interesting about how all throughout history in the church, there has been a real value to beautiful and precious things being given back to God, being used to glorify God. But that last line is there is the key one because Adam and Eve have been called not just to work in the garden, but here they're specifically commanded to work in the garden too, okay? So they've been called to go out and to develop and create in the whole world, but they've also been called to work in the garden. And here is this first place where there's this idea that God's people are to come into his presence and do something and, and to keep and to work. And not only is the call for them to do like maintenance work, I mean, you imagine them in the garden and what do you, what do you imagine? I, I think I put clippers in their hands and they're trimming trees, right? They're like, okay, it, it doesn't say. But I think there's a lot more than that. And the reason I think there's a lot more than that is because if we fast forward into Exodus where the temple is being built, we get some hints of the ways that God calls people to work. This is really, a, this is like the scripture for artists and craftsmen right here. So I've spent a lot of time reading it in the past. But Exodus 31, 1 through 11, here Moses, the man of God, has been called to build a tabernacle, a dwelling place for the people to come and meet with God through their priests. And the Lord says to Moses, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have um, skilled uh, or filled him, sorry, with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and stone cutting and setting and carving wood to work in every craft. And I've appointed with him Oholiab, the son of of Ishamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I've given to all able men the ability that they might be able to make everything that I've commanded you. The tent, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that's on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table, its utensils, the pure lampstand with its, utensil, with its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burn, burnt offerings with its utensils, the basin and its stands, the finely woven garments, 
for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. There's this whole community. Have you ever thought about that? God filled them with the Holy Spirit to make incense. How cool, right? And to, to make furniture and utensils and to bang metal into a basin that is smooth. I mean, this took time and effort and skill. Not only are there priests and people that lead the days and the festivals, but the work of art and craftsmanship and tailoring and perfumery. I mean, all of these things, these strengths come together, and that's not even the whole of it. That's just preparing the place. We have stories like that about this place. Like, some of you that had skills and others that were just like, I can knock that wall down. And you did it, right? You did it. Or you took pictures of it, like Trent. I mean, there's so many roles and things that happened when we got this place. But in this case, with the infilling of the Spirit of God, these people directly participated in facilitating worship for people. That's what they did. And the garden was, was separate from the rest of creation, but it wasn't off limits. People were invited in to meet with God, but also to serve God and one another in his presence. The temple later would have priests, but the people were invited. In the New Testament, all believers are called priests, which is probably how Adam and Eve were viewed because of the high priestly work of Jesus so when we come together, we come before God, and we don't just come to receive, we come with things to offer. Every single one of us comes with things to offer. And when God fills people with his spirit, he fills them with his spirit to do all of it, every single bit of it. So some people come with more priestly gifts, like they're going to teach or make decisions or, or pray, or they're going to study these ancient texts, or they're going to have you know musicianship and the ability to put music and words together. Some of us come with abilities to build and create and cook and cook vegan and mix sound and serve and invite people and carry people into God's presence and offer hospitality and to bring healing by binding up with, with words and with bandages. Like every single, I mean, I can't, I can't even begin. I'd have to just go down the list of all of you and talk about all the different little things that, that come into the service and the worship of God because you're here. And I've said this in the past, the worst thing, and this is an issue within our community, the worst thing about missing church is not that you miss the sermon because I know there's a podcast and it's not that our seats don't have as many butts in them as they could. That's not the, the issue. The issue is that when you're not here, you're not here. You, like, and everything that you bring to the kingdom isn't here. And it's never as good when you're not here. I, I, could, I could go around. It's not as good when you're not here, and you're not here, and you're not here, and you're not here. And it, seriously, it isn't. There have been weeks where, like, way more have been here, and there's just a feeling. And you see that person you haven't seen for a while, and you get to talk to so-and-so, and the kids' room has more volunteers than you ever thought it needed. And there's more food and what, whatever. And there's so many of us on the patio, we have to go play basketball. And the neighborhood kid comes and shoots around. Like, that happens when you're here. And, by the way, 
because I, and I know this is going to be increasingly true because we live in a very mobile world. We will be out of town and people will be in town. Churches are enriched when, you, when you're there. I had a cool experience when I was in Mexico. I'd been thinking about these kind of things and there were churches every block um, in the city I was in. So I was like, I'm going. And I, I went to one of the morning masses entirely in Spanish and I don't speak much. And I just took it in, and then I recognized the Apostles' Creed, and I was like, ah, cool. I don't know how I helped them out, but I was there. There was a couple that came through here. uh, They were on their honeymoon. I don't know if you guys remember them. They came around Christmas time a couple years ago, Dominic and Anita, from Germany, and they went to church every Sunday on their honeymoon, And they came here and they were trying to travel into Mexico and got blocked at the border because they bought a van in Canada on a whim. And so they they got stuck here for an extra week and they came over to our house and we made Mexican food together and he gave me a special German liqueur. It was the best. Why do I have this great story about Dominic and Anita? They worshiped with God's people on vacation. It's sweet. It really is a beautiful thing. The experience of gathering as the church is best when the diversity of the church is here and present and working together. It really is. Like I said, I don't want to make anybody feel guilty. I just want to tell you, we want you here, and it makes a difference when you're here. So finally, the church also has a mission. We have to peek back into Genesis 1 a little more to see this clearly. Um, We wanted to take it easy on our reader this week. It was already long and had a lot of like river names. And so I'm going to have to read you a little more from Genesis 1. But it says, uh, when we just bounce back a little bit, then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, right? That's not an Eden. Over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is a vast calling to go out and have dominion. And this means to like take responsibility for and cultivate and work and develop, right? And then it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. And I have given every green plant for food. This is like this massive, this mission that God has said. He said, go out, develop, care for, use, treasure, the earth and everything in it. This is the sixth day or the sixth round of creation. We read about it in this creation song and it's the stanza right before we're told to rest, we're told to work, and then we're told to rest. It's kind of this final movement of the symphony and therefore it's very important. God's people made in his image with a glory that makes them stand out above all the other creatures with a greater capacity are called to do what he has done to create and develop in the earth. And here we find out the connection between the garden, 
which is this worshiping gathering and the world, is that we are to be shaped in the garden in worship, and then we are sent into the world. When we are shaped in the garden, we go and we do good God-honoring works. When we are shaped by something other than the garden, we destroy, okay? We are to be blessed in the garden, find our meaning and purpose in worship, and then move into the world and witness to what we've seen and heard in the garden, witness to the beauty of the God who's in the church. And someday the Bible tells us that God will bring our work to completion, that he'll return and revive the creation, but not without the work of our hands. Remember in the beginning there's a garden, and we were sent out to develop the world. In the beginning there were plants that we could eat, but in the revelation at the end of the scriptures, the unveiling is what that means, at the end of the Bible, there's a garden in the midst of a city. And cities are things that we made, right? Cities are things that we've built. And there's a garden in the midst of the city and the new city. And we don't just eat from a tree of life now as we look forward to that city. We drink wine in that new city. And as we await it, we drink wine and we eat bread together. Wine that was made when we went out and developed the plants of the field, right? That's what happens when you, when you have dominion over a grapevine, you make wine, and it's awesome. And the more you love it, the better it is. This is his work getting developed by our work. This is creation that becomes liturgy when we're on mission that glorifies God in the end. Do you see that? Like That's like the narrative going across the scripture. There's creation, liturgy, our work, we're sent out on a mission from him, and it glorifies him at the end. And at this time, we're waiting and witnessing that day. We're, we're waiting for and witnessing to that day. So how should we think about church and the role of it, right? This is where we come back to recenter and refocus to keep being about the mission, to keep being about doing work it glorifies God and points to that day. And we feed on things like bread and wine. Has it ever struck you that in the garden we came to grapes and wheat and now we come to bread and wine? Things that we made when we went out and developed the earth. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And this points us not only to God's creational work, but his work that overcomes the curse from when we disobeyed in the garden. And every time we come together to worship, we are pointed back God has solved the problem. God has entered in. And then we're sent out to bear witness in our words and also in our work. So here's how I'm thinking about this. I think we should view every single church like it's a garden in our city. Like we should think about like the city parks are like garden B. We're garden A in the city. Like every single one of us should be like we're witnessing to the goodness of God, to the amazing things that he's done for us, to the calling that he's given us and to the future hope that we have. And coming here is, if, if what I'm saying here is right, and most theologians agree with me, by the way, that Eden is the first church, this is a taste of Eden. This is a taste of what we were created for and what we await. 
And when we are shaped here and carry that out into the world, and when people come in and taste and see, they are getting the closest taste of Eden that they have ever had. Churches should be like gardens all over the city, places of rest and worship centered on Christ. And then churches should be taking that garden work out into our world. And I actually think it's a beautiful thing what I saw in Houston, where they actually made a park. I mean, where the churches said, we're going to stand up and and do something about evil and injustice, but not with violence. We're going to create something beautiful and sweet and invite the community in to celebrate. And then in doing that, they were also witnessing to what they did in the church and the God that enabled them to go out and raise and spend all their money to bless the city. The little gardens of churches should be known in the city for blessing the city and showing people what Eden is like. That's the calling. And it would be a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful metaphor. Recap. We've been commanded to rest in the work of God to Sabbath, to tune our hearts and worship. The people of God are together regularly in his presence to be shaped by his words and his wisdom and to be reminded of their calling, and then they're sent back into the world. People should see us going back to Eden and coming out and blessing them. That should be an evident and obvious thing to our watching neighbors. The people of God are called to work together, their liturgy, to make the gathering of worship sweet and enriching to everyone who is there, and ultimately to God who they're worshiping. And then the people are sent out on mission to do works that are shaped by the principles of Eden, to be Christ-centered and beautiful and enriching. And people might reject it, like what happened with Emancipation Park. People might say, no, we're not into that. You church people are being too, you're over-spiritualizing this, you're making it too political or whatever. But I hope that in our faithful work, someday, As that new city descends, people will stand before God and see that the church of Jesus Christ was indeed bringing beautiful things and that they'll praise God when they see our good works, which is what the Bible says should happen. Okay? I hope you see it. You should come to church. The conclusion of our worship is always to come to the table Uh, Here we're reminded that in Eden there was a tree of life. We rebelled and fell into temptation because we thought we could be our own gods. But our gracious God entered into creation in Jesus the Son and absorbed our sin in his body, dying at the hands of sinful people. In the garden there was the tree of life, and in the church we have the body and blood of Christ. And it's this incredible gift that he invites us to, to eat of the bread and wine of the work of our hands. So Jesus says to all who believe in him and receive his grace, this is my body broken for you. Remember me whenever you eat it. And this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of many. Come and be filled so that you can go out and proclaim my death until I return. And Jesus tells us the next time he's going to drink delicious wine is with us. And we proclaim that day and we hope for it. Before we take part in the Lord's Supper as a community, we're going to pause for a time of silent confession. 
And if you're just a spectator here, we are so glad you're here. We hope that you see us worshiping Jesus truly. We also understand that we're deeply sinful, which is why we're going to come up and receive grace. It's our only hope. It's all we can offer. If you're not ready to receive that grace, if you look at Jesus and say, I don't get it, that's okay. Um, you can sit back. We'd love to talk to you about that, but, but no pressure. We're going to take a time of silence, and that's for all of you just to pray, confess your sins, and know that the God we're approaching here is a life-giving God, and he loves to redeem. It's his favorite thing to do. You can confess your sins to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. While we sing at the end, I'll also be passing the Lord's Supper out to anyone who would come and receive Christ. Uh, we always have giving in the back. And then the way that we end our time together is with dinner. And so we hope you hang around and, uh, and spend time with each other. Talk to one another. Hear about each other's weeks. Ask good questions. If somebody doesn't look familiar, give them a try. They're probably uh, just a little bit nervous like you. So let's pray. And then we'll enter into silence together. Father, thank you for this church. Most of all, thank you that you've always gathered a people. Thank you that from the very creation, uh, you have shown that you're a good creator. You've given us life and breath and everything. Your presence is what we really need. You shape us for meaningful life. Our work is beautiful when it's shaped by you. Our love for one another is perfect when it's shaped by you. Give us a longing to be with you more, to be shaped by you, and to be with your people, and then send us out to witness to your kingdom in our city. As we sit before you now, if there's anything that we need to bring to you, any hidden sins, give us boldness to do it, knowing that you're full of grace. But also, we just want to be in your presence. Speak to us. Tell us anything we need to hear. We open up ourselves to you.